show. Welcome. You may be seated. I'm going to do something I have never done before. I'm going to sit and preach. Just, I'm tired. No, no, that's not No, no, no. About three weeks ago, just in case you're wondering why I wasn't standing during praise and worship, I uh, very severely pinched a nerve in my lower back. And um, so that's been a source of problem. I'm gradually getting there. And I do want to say a very big thank you to uh, Magic Fingers, Steve Burgess. Woo! In case you don't know, just stand up, Steve. Yeah. So Steve is a masseuse, if you didn't know. Masseuse? Uh, masseuse? What is it? Oh, masseuse is fit. What? Well, sorry. Hey, in today's what? No, sorry. Uh, she's a massage genius. She worked on me for an hour yesterday. I had the best night's sleep in three weeks. So thank you, Steve. Yeah. So I've never done this before. You Have you ever heard a preacher sitting down? Yeah. You have? Okay. So it's not new for you. Charles Sam. Charles Okay. Yeah. I might start doing it just comfortable. Yeah, actually, this is quite, it's quite cool, actually. It's quite comfortable. Because normally I'm fairly energetic, and uh, all over the stage, and jumping on chairs, and whatever, sometimes. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, I, I love coming back to Vineyard, and wonderful to see so many, so many uh, friends from many, many years, and I won't mention names, but um, how many of you, by the way, are here that have never seen me before? Any way of you never seen me before? Wow. Where have you? That's, so that's interesting. In two years, it's yeah. oh, a lot of people who've never seen me. Um, you're lost, I guess. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, church is an incredible community. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. I was talking, you know, like with Stephen Freddie and others who have maybe come in in recent years, and um, and even with Steve yesterday, Steve Burgess, and and just about people you come and this. This is not just a club. This is a community. This is a family. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you drive past, and some of you may have even on the way to come here this morning, you may have driven past a golf club or a bowls club or a darts club or some other club. You know, when we drive past those things, we go, oh, yeah, that's, for, that's where the people who love darts go. That's where the people who play, play golf go. That's where the people who who play football go. That's where the people who play. A lot of people when they drive, drive past the church often think that's where the people who play church, oh, I'm not playing. <laughs> but that's where the people who love church go. But how do you know this isn't a club? This is not a private club. This is actually meant to be open to everybody. Everybody. And um, interesting question and just, I was thinking recently, if I were not a Christian, if I were not a follower of Jesus, um, and in today's world and culture, particularly with social media, and I want to find out about Christianity, I wonder what opinion I would form in today's world, just from the general media and social media, because that's, to be honest and sadly, that's where most people get their information. I would dare to suggest that our perception may not be overwhelmingly positive. So how do we count it? In fact, a lot of stuff out there about the church, and, and to be honest, sadly, even some Christians, it's full of judge, judgmentalism and opinions and, and, uh, and unkind. But we as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, 
want to encourage you. We need to understand that our, our mission afresh, discover how to fulfill that in a world that is rapidly changing. And you know, the culture in which we live in this country is changing dramatically. For, for decades, we who are followers of Jesus, the church was almost embedded in our culture in this country. And whilst Australia's never been a religious or a Christian country as such, yet the values were adopted by and large by our culture. That has changed. The church is increasingly seen as the enemy and, um, and as being all sorts of negative things. And I want to say the culture is changing rapidly and the culture is not coming to church. We have to go to the culture. We have to go to the world. By the way, coming to church is kind of like down past the club. Coming to church, even on Sunday, is not a natural thing to do. I mean, if you drive past one of those clubs, whatever it might be, it's kind of not a natural thing unless you have a keen interest in that particular thing to go. So how do people get to come here? How do they get to be a part of this wonderful family? Well, by you. You're God's great plan. You're God's great plan. And, um, and as the world and our culture is rapidly changing, the church has got to change. To engage the world with the changeless message. So whilst the world is changing, the message the good news of the gospel never changes. The way we deliver it may change. The way we present it may change. Because, by the way, change is inevitable. But irrelevancy is not. Let me just say that again. Change is inevitable, but irrelevancy is not. And uh, more than ever, I think we need to see and experience an encounter. Because there's one thing that regardless of of the culture wars and regardless of all the opinions and the craziness in the world in which we live. There's one thing that's hard to argue against and that's an encounter with the presence of Jesus Christ. You can't argue against that personal experience of an encounter with God. By the way, um, just allow me for one moment. Steve, as I was driving away from you yesterday afternoon, I, um, I just felt God drop a word in my heart um, that there's a, a, a page is turning in your book, you and Jody's journey. Page is turning and there's a new chapter beginning now. A new chapter, and it's a whole new chapter. And in that, God is actually going to change you, change your station in life. So there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen if you continue to walk humbly before God. If you, and I felt this was a really important thing, if you take good advice, Get good advice about the decisions and the things that you do. But I just feel God is going to take you and turn it into a whole new level. Uh, your life is changed. This is a new chapter. It's not just a page turn. This is a new chapter. And you're coming here to stand through as a God direction in your life and be open to that growing and changing and developing in the days ahead. So I just want to share that with you. Mate. So... More than ever, we need to see an encounter, an experience, an encounter with the presence of God. That is inarguable. How many of you have had an encounter, an experience with the presence of Jesus in your life? Yeah, most of us here have. And we need to find a way to introduce others to that same Jesus. And moving forward, by the way, I think that the church is again going to see 
uh, arise in the expression of the supernatural. We're going to see an increase in the miraculous and in the demonstration of God's, uh, God's presence. We're going to see miracles. We're going to see healings. We're going to see an expression of God's nature afresh. You know that um, the sociologists' uh, research indicated that that about three years after every global pandemic, a spiritual renewal happens, a spiritual revival happens. And about last October, I began to see something as I travel in churches around our country. Suddenly something is shifting in the spirit. Something is changing. And what I want to encourage you, it's a bit like when the wind changes direction, if you're a sailor, then you just you change the set of your sail. And it's time to change the set of your sail pick up the wind of the spirit because there's a new breath is blowing, a new wind is blowing. And um, with that in mind, I'm talking about the presence of God and creating an environment and an atmosphere for God that God loves. I want to share just some thoughts. There's this remarkable verse in the book of Matthew chapter chapter 13. And, and it's this one statement at the end of just about four verses which is some commentary about Jesus. And then this is one verse that's remarkable for all the wrong reasons. Let me read these to you. It's Matthew 13, 54 to 58. And Jesus coming to his hometown, which was Nazareth, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother, Mary, mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And here's the verse that I find so kind of mind-boggling that Jesus could not and did not do many miracles or many mighty miracles. He did, depending on the translation you read, he did just a few miracles in that place because of their lack of faith, because of their unbelief. The, the message says their hostile indifference. The Passion Translation says their unbelief kept him from doing many mighty miracles. I mean, I find that mind-boggling that, I mean, this is Jesus, the Son of God. And he goes into an environment and he can't do many great things in that place. The people in Nazareth created an atmosphere. They created an environment where Jesus couldn't do much. He couldn't do many, but that's mind-boggling. And it raises a really important question. See, I want to create an atmosphere in my life and we want to create an atmosphere, I'm sure, in our church where God can do a lot of things, where God can do many mighty miracles, not just a few things, but many things. And I want just in these few minutes this morning, we'll be out of here by one. I want to just, I want to talk about creating the atmosphere for miracles. How many of you know that in life, Atmosphere and environment is really important. So, if you want to have a romantic evening at home, um, 
subdued lighting, maybe candlelight, soft music. How many of you know it's really hard to have a romantic time if the kids are running around screaming? I mean, it was probably a romantic night that got you to that point anyway, but anyway, I believe that. Um, you need to create the atmosphere, the right kind of... I, I've, I've got some plants on the kitchen, the, the, above my kitchen sink near the window, and just some, some herbs and whatever, and some mint and some basil and some thyme, and, Coral Basil was looking too good the other day. And my daughter said, oh, Dad, because she's got similar ones, and um, said, oh, Basil likes more, a bit more sunlight. You know, ah. So I'm not creating the right environment for Basil's growth, Coral Basil. Um, I, I may have, I may have, um, I have given this, this as an illustration here in another context some years ago. But it's, it bears repeating the importance and almost the contagious nature of the right atmosphere. So the first time I ever went to a baseball game in the United States, I, I um, which is crazy. Any of you been to a baseball game in the city? Yeah, I, I mean, just. So the first time I ever went, which was about nearly 20 years ago, I've been to a few games. I was in LA at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. And. Um, and uh, I went with a friend, and it was just an experience. I didn't particularly follow baseball. I just wanted the experience. And if you've been, some of you have, to a game like that, man, did they create an atmosphere. Oh, my goodness, at the end of each innings, you get something, the organ, you da 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 and you know, the crowd cheers, yeah, it's all happening. <laughs> Those of you who've been there know what it's like. It is, and this atmosphere, this is someone who, who's a heathen. <laughs> to baseball. Yep. Um, and at half time, I knew this atmosphere was so contagious because I'm standing with the rest of the crowd with my hand on my heart singing God bless America. Because the atmosphere was so contagious. Atmosphere is powerful. And here's the deal. We create an atmosphere and environment in our lives and corporately, if you're part of this church, when we come together, we create an environment uh, amongst many things. One of the things is we create an environment where God can or, like Nazareth, cannot do much. It's quite challenging. So we can define a miracle as the intervention of God in the natural order of things. The intervention of God in the natural order of things. So you've got the natural, the way things will just pan out naturally. But then a miracle is where the intervention of God in that natural order of things. By the way, to God it's really not a miracle, it's just Him. It's actually not miraculous to God. That's who He is. That's, that's His nature, that's what He does. How many of you have ever received a miracle, by the way? If you're, let me just say, too. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have already received the greatest miracle you could, and that's the miracle of a transformed life. The greatest miracle is the miracle of a transformed life. The miracle of a transformed heart. See, every other miracle we can have, we can have, and I'm, we're going to see a lot more of it. I've experienced miraculous of, uh, miracles of healing and various other things, miracles of provision. But you know, you can get the greatest miracle of healing, but you know what? It's only temporary. Because, I hate to tell you this, you're going to die. 
Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> You're not getting out of here alive. I don't mean this morning. Okay, relax. You, unless Jesus comes back before, before you die. So the greatest miracle is actually the miracle of a transformed life. And that, in fact, is why Jesus came. To transform people's hearts and lives. But miracles rarely just happen. And there's numbers of factors that play. By the way, you doing okay with me sitting? Is that all right? Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it okay? Yeah. I'm not used to like. Maybe we could get one of the wheels because then I feel a little like to go up and down the stage like I normally do. Um, so right through Scripture, Old New Testament, we see we see all sorts of miracles and and um, but they don't just happen. There's some stuff that leads up that creates the atmosphere that puts people in the miracle zone that releases God's miracle power, whether it be to transform a life, whether it be for a healing miracle or a miracle of provision. In this incident in Nazareth that we read about before, it's quite interesting, we read, we're told very clearly what stopped the miraculous. It said their unbelief. Now that's a common theme right through the Bible, it was lack of faith or unbelief that stopped God's will happening, God's desire, God's miracle power happening. Now, and we know a study from a study of Old and New Testament that faith is key to the miraculous. Faith is key. But what does faith look like? Well, I've, I've got a series. In fact, you know, I've got, I don't know whether I've got it on my iPad here. I've got a series of literally six messages what faith looks like. So if we start now, we could probably be done by dinner tonight. <laughs> no, no. I. There's many points we could make about faith and aspects we could talk about, but for the sake of time and simplicity, I've distilled it down to just two key elements for this morning. Faith looks like and and is made up of two key elements that are important to create an atmosphere that's conducive to miracles, and it's very simple. Number one is attitude. Yeah. That can look like many different things. How many of you know praise is an attitude? Yeah. It's a, now, it's an action, and that's the second thing. So attitude and action. Okay. How many of you know you can stand in church and sing a song, but if your heart's not there, you're just doing the action, you haven't got the attitude. So it's interesting when you distill it down, everything in faith distills down to these two key elements, attitude and action. And they are intrinsically related, they're, they're intertwined, and they work together to create an atmosphere where God can do stuff. So in this incident in Nazareth, it's interesting, what did the unbelief look like? What was it that stopped God? Well, it's interesting, and I would sum it up as this word, and I'll explain it to you. Familiarity. It looked like, unbelief looked like familiarity, listen to this. They see. They thought they knew it. Who is it? This is isn't this Jesus? Isn't it? And they said, "Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his sisters all here with us? Aren't his brothers?" Blah blah blah. blah. We know this guy. There was a familiarity. They thought they knew him, and that familiarity, which is an attitude. 
that created an atmosphere where Jesus couldn't do much. And I want to suggest to you this morning that one of the great traps for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to think that you know him and to think that you've got him worked out and to think you, that you know how he does stuff and how he moves. We have insights, we learn, we have glimpses, we do get to know him. That's, that's Paul cried out, that I might know him. But you haven't reached that, the full pinnacle of that. None of us have. And the moment I think that I know him, the moment I think that I know how God works, I'm putting him in my box. The box of my thinking, the box of my experience, the box of my understanding. See, they, they thought they knew Jesus based on the past, on the experience, on, yeah, well, isn't he this, isn't he, isn't he the carpenter's son? He grew up, blah, 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 blah. We know his family, we know him. That stopped them. I want to tell you familiarity. If you think you know how God works, now we may know some aspects, but the moment we put God in that box, we're bringing Him into the little box of our thinking and our experience, and we limit what He can do. How do you know God's bigger than your thinking? Yes. I'm really glad about that. And that's not a reflection on your thinking. But if if God was no bigger than your thinking and your thoughts, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. So often we have preconceived ideas about how God does stuff. One of the things I've discovered is that we may have these preconceived ideas, but God's a whole lot bigger than whatever preconceived ideas we may have. About how he does stuff. This is how God does it. Yeah, that's how he did it then. I mean, you think when Jesus encountered people in the New Testament when he was here on the planet, he, he met people, he encountered them in a different way. He did different things. I mean, and someone was outside of the box, the woman that he met at the well, the woman of Samaria that he met at the well. Oh my goodness. Like that was totally outside the box of cultural, what was culturally acceptable. I mean, and you could take many incidents where he didn't do things according to the formula. So familiarity will cause us to put God in a box, limit him to our knowledge and our thinking and our experience, and it robs us of bigger possibilities. It robs us of one familiarity, even in life. You know, they all say familiarity breeds contempt. And it's true, we might not openly be contemptuous, but it kind of breeds a lack of appreciation. Listen, even in relationships and in the stuff we have and enjoy and the people that God blesses us with in life, we can become so familiar that we lose appreciation. So, with the right attitude, and this is an attitude thing, they had a wrong attitude, we can create the atmosphere for God to do stuff, for miracles to happen. See, here's something you understand. All God's miracles start with one thing in common. They all start with a problem or a need. All miracles start with a problem or a need. Every miracle you read about in the Bible started with some situation where somebody or people needed God's intervention, they needed a miracle. If you don't have any problems, you don't need a miracle. 
you don't have any problems, you don't have a situation, then you don't need God. Anybody got any problems? <laughs> if you have a problem, if you have an issue, if you have a situation, then you're a candidate to receive a miracle. It's a starting point. But really, you have to be prepared to acknowledge that you have a need. Now, sometimes for some of us that may be difficult. Now, and I'm not just talking, sometimes we think about miracles, we're just thinking about physical healing or something. And we know that's part of it. But we don't like to admit some of our needs. We don't like to acknowledge we have a problem, and it might be a problem with anger. Might be a problem with lack of self-control. Might be a problem with negative thinking. Or we could maybe list 20, 30 things or more that are not just some physical need, you know. And God is touching my, my back issue. That's a physical problem. But, but sometimes the greatest needs and the greatest issues where we need God to touch our inside. And, um, and, and of course, we sometimes because we find it difficult to acknowledge those needs and admit them, uh, and we have all kinds of avoidance strategies. We become defensive. We we blame others. No, well, it was actually if they said, and if you know, whatever. And sometimes we just deny there's an issue. There's a really interesting story, and I won't take time to read it. It's in, in the Old Testament, King Second Kings, I think it is. Syrian general named Naaman, who was well known and highly regarded. He was the commander in chief of, of the Syrian army. And he uh, has a big problem. He has diagnosed with leprosy. And you got to understand back in the day that that's the end of life. In fact, you, you, if you have leprosy, you are put on the outside of the city because of the contagious nature of that disease. Uh, you become isolated. You thought COVID was bad. Leprosy, try leprosy. Uh, his problem was so bad he couldn't escape it. It threatened everything, it threatened his life. And a little Jewish girl that had been taken captive encouraged him to find the prophet, God's prophet, Elisha. So, long story, eventually he goes to Elisha, Naaman goes to Elisha. And um, and Elisha doesn't even come out and meet him. So this is like commander-in-chief. And Elisha doesn't even bother to come outside and meet him. He sends a messenger out and says, hey, go and dip in the river Jordan seven times. And it was interesting because Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Oh, he had a preconceived idea already of maybe how God should do it. But not only that, the bigger issue, so he had a preconceived idea of how God was going to do it, but he goes away angry and he talks about, we've got better rivers in our country than the Jordan, that dirty old river. There's an issue of pride, which, how many of you know that's attitude? There's a lack of humility. Now, the story goes on, and eventually his servants convince him. And he finally humbles his heart. And he goes into the Jordan, and 
and he dips in the river several times and he comes out completely healed. Wow. Now, he, humility. He had to acknowledge his problem. And then he had to come before God with humility. Then the action, of course, was to do what God had said, dip in the river seven times. So attitude and action. Humility to acknowledge our needs sometimes is a big issue, particularly those internal ones. It's not hard for me to acknowledge my need this morning, or, you know, pinch note on the back. But if I've got an anger problem or if I've got some other issue that's inside, sometimes it's more challenging to acknowledge that. Um, it's an interesting thing. How many of you ever been embarrassed? Ever felt embarrassed? It'd be interesting to go around and get your most embarrassing story. You know, we, we've all got those moments and um, uh, where we've had embarrassing situations. One of the ones that I remember, <coughs> there's been a lot, believe me, over the years, was I, this is 20 years ago, there was a pastor, an older pastor, who wanted to meet me on the Gold Coast. So we met at Australia Fair in the eatery for lunch. And, um, and that's cool, and we go and get food, and we come down, we sit at the table, and we're sitting there about to start, and, and he, um, he wants to say grace, and that's, that's cool, that's no problem with that. But he reaches across the table, and he grabs both my hands. Yeah, Trudy, you get it. So, now, if this was a 15-second grace, I can handle it. But this was not just any ordinary grace. He began to pray for the missionaries around the world. And, like, I'm, a, I'm an Aussie male, and sitting there holding hands with another bloke just doesn't come easy for me. I am feeling uncomfortable and breaking out and sweat. People are walking past me. It's like I'm increasingly getting embarrassed because, oh my goodness. Embarrassment is a strange thing. It's a self-consciousness that causes us to want to hide or to hide from others. Um, it involves our concern in relation to what others think about us when you think about it. So let me illustrate that. I'm not going to do this this morning, but, but if I were to say... Who would come out here on stage this morning and be prepared to sing a nursery rhyme on one leg, standing on one leg and rotating around doing a pirouette? Who would come and do that? Yeah, there's, there's, always, there's always a handful. <laughs> yep, there's always some. I reckon that's awesome. But then some of you, some of you go, no way of God's little green planet. But then if I were to say, I'll give a hundred dollars. To anybody who's prepared to come now, I'm not, okay? The if I were to say. How many of you know? Just give me a raise if Oh, there's more hands going up now. If then there's still some of you, not for a hundred dollars. If I were to say for a thousand dollars, yeah, there's a lot more hands. Give me hands, okay? Isn't that interesting? Your embarrassment has a price. Interesting, eh? What are you willing to trade? So the point of this is God doesn't want to humiliate us or embarrass us, but there's a point of being willing to humble ourselves in order to create the environment and to reach out to him. And, you know, and if he says, tell me your need, acknowledge your need, God, I'm having this problem with self-control. I've got this problem with criticism. 
got this problem with negativity, whatever it is. Let me draw a little clock. Is, so, um, this is this is great passage of scripture in in Mark chapter three. So where where Jesus he's walked through it's the Sabbath. He's walked through with his disciples. He's walked through the grain fields and they've eaten, taken some of the grain, the, 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 the grain and eaten it, and they've been hammered by the Pharisees for doing this on the Sabbath. You shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. He then goes, they then go to the synagogue. And it says, and I'll read this. He went to the city to the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. So this is a story of two, two layers, actually. It's a story about Jesus confronting a religious system and people in that religious system <coughs> who didn't really care much about people. Certainly not about a man with a crippled or a withered hand. They were more intent on preserving their religious legalities. And they were so focused on rules and regulation and an intent, so intent on finding a way to attack Jesus. So on one level, you've got that's part of the story. On another level, it's a story about a man with a crippling and embarrassing disability that finds himself actually having to expose that weakness to Jesus. And in so doing, receives healing and has his life miraculously transformed. Now, by the way, weaknesses are reminders of our dependence upon God. When we are strong and self-sufficient in our own abilities and resources, it's very easy, we're tempted to do life without God. When we are weak, when our own resources are stretched and exhausted, there's maybe nothing we can do. You know, three weeks ago, I'm lying on my back, and I was on my back for 10 days, an absolute 11 out of 10 agony. Just, I slept about two hours to two and a half hours each night, broken sleep, for 10 nights. It was, the pain was unbelievable. And I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm lying there crying out to God. Because I wasn't, I, I was like dependent on him. I was weak. When we reach the end of our abilities, we become conscious of our need of God. <clears throat> and of course, it's in our weaknesses, and Paul talks about this, that we most clearly experience God's strength. In my weakness, Paul says, find God's strength. By the way, even though Paul, sorry, God didn't remove Paul's affliction, he promised to demonstrate his power in Paul. Can I just say this? God doesn't always change the circumstances. Sometimes he changes things inside of us. Either way, it's a miracle. And in admitting our weakness, we affirm God's strength. Some people think that faith is a denial of reality. No, it's not. As I said before, faith starts and miracles start when we acknowledge we have a need, we have a problem. And, and come back to this guy with the crippled hand, the withered hand, and you talk about humility. 
So just, just look at this, picture yourself. So people, the Pharisees, they're looking for a reason to attack and accuse Jesus. And they're watching him, they're looking for every opportunity. And Jesus says to the man with his shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Oh, great, Jesus. Just what, I just want to sneak into the back row. I just wanted to remain anonymous. And now you get me to stand up in front of everybody. <coughs> How many of you know that takes a bit of humility? It kind of humbles us. You know, if you told me before church this morning, I've got a problem, I'll pick up Pastor Jeremy because he doesn't have any problems. But, um, <laughs> you know, if Jeremy told me before church this morning, listen, I've really got a problem with anger. And if I said to him now, Pastor Jeremy, just stand up in front of everybody. And remember the guy with the shriveled hand, he can't hide the problem. And I go, Pastor Jeremy, he's got a real problem with anger. Now, I wouldn't do that because... But the point is that we have to come to God, we have to come to Jesus and be willing to expose our weakness to him. And so he stands up in front of everybody and then Jesus uses him as an object lesson to teach the Pharisees. So Jesus pr proceeds to, to teach the Pharisees about some stuff, the guy's standing there. Oh my goodness. But then, that's not the end of it. So Jesus looks around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hands, at their stubborn hearts, he said. Then he says to the man, with the crippled head, stretch out your hand. <laughs> oh, come on, Jesus. Stretch. Stretch out your hand? Like, don't you know? Jesus is saying you need to expose your weakness. You need to stretch out your weakness to me. We're happy to stretch out our good hand 